When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast. The nights are getting ever darker. I can't remember the last time we recorded one of these and the light and it's only about four o'clock in the afternoon. But I hope wherever you are, it's not so dark and gloomy. It's maybe a little bit brighter. Uh, we've got loads to be getting on with this week, as always. And we'll, of course, be revisiting the case of Peng Shui and bringing you right up to date with everything that's gone on in the last seven days there. Uh, we'll also talk about the WTA finals where Garbina Muguruza won a tournament, which is basically what we always think she should do. Barbara Krachikova did, in fact, win a WTA Finals title as well, albeit in the doubles. Um, she also gave a quite remarkable speech about the Velvet Revolution, which got me doing some reading about old Czechoslovakia. Um, and there was the small matter of the ATP Finals, the counterpuncher versus counterpuncher in the final. Um, and there was Novak Djokovic talking about the Australian Open and vaccines. Roger Federer did a big interview. As you can see, there's a lot to be getting on with. Uh, but there really is only one place to start in tennis and, quite frankly, in wider news this week, and that is the case of Peng Shui. If you listen to last week's podcast, and I would urge you to do so, um, you will know, or frankly, even if you've been anywhere in the news, you will know that she posted an allegation 20 days ago now on Weibo uh, about a former senior official in the Chinese Communist Party, uh, Zhang Zhao Li. I apologise in advance to any... Um, Mandarin speakers, for my pronunciations of these names, I'm doing my best. I don't speak Mandarin. Um, she posted these allegations uh, of sexual assault, among other things, and coercion and controlling behaviours. Uh, they were quickly deleted, and she hasn't really been seen or heard from properly since. Now, if you've missed everything that's gone on in the last week, there was huge global outcry from from tournaments, from bodies, led by the WTA, by Steve Simon, the CEO and chairman, who's been extremely strong, basically saying that without proper treatment of Peng Shui, uh, without a full and frank investigation into her allegations and without her eventually being uncensored, um, he will withdraw the WTA from China, which I think, as we mentioned last week, is a huge, you know, multi, multi, multi-million dollar uh, withdrawal. 
on both sides that would benefit neither side, let's face it, but would benefit human rights and freedoms and things like that. Uh, we've since seen some of Peng Shui, she, the Chinese state-controlled media, um, I've read more of the Global Times than I thought I would over the last couple of days, released uh, a couple of videos with various problems within them, but videos of Peng Shui at a restaurant, um, including a conversation where they very specifically and audibly talked about what the date was, which made things seem very odd. Um, there was also a video of her appearing at a, a, a children's tennis event over the weekend where she did some signings and, and met some Chinese children, all of which at least proved one thing, which is that she is not in a prison cell 24 hours a day and that she is alive, which I suppose is a positive, but it doesn't prove anything about coercion, about who's controlling her or, or anything like that. So it's been um, quite a long week that culminated in a video call with uh, the IOC chairman, Thomas Bach, uh, the IOC have said very little about the case, uh, other than that they hoped that they would be assured of her safety. And then they were given this 30-minute audience with her and a few other people on the call who may or may not have been involved. George, it's been a long week when it comes to this particular news cycle, maybe one of the first weeks where you're glad you're not working as a tennis journalist. Um, what have you? What have you made of it all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting story and case. It's funny because we I remember when we first uh, first put this in our order of play last week and flagged it up, the first conversation we had was, how big a story is this going to be? Is it going to be escalated? How strong are the WTA going to go? I think that's the first point to start. Is like you have to give immense credit to the WTA and Steve Simon. I think, okay, you could argue the first statement came a little bit late. But beyond that, he's been pretty forthright pretty strong um, and not taking things that, as you say, kind of face value, here she is, all's la-di-da and happy. Um, so I think that, that's been, I don't want to say incredibly brave because it, it should just be the natural moral stance. But it was really yes, it's, a, it's a pretty more. sad indictment of the world that we live in that we're praising people for doing what is just obviously right. the right thing. Yeah. But yeah, you can't always expect it in big business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the sad reality is, unfortunately, money talks. And he's been far braver than people like the NBA, for example, in the past, or Arsenal, you could say, yeah. um, to give two examples off the top of my head. Um, so I, I think that's taken, in inverted commas, a lot of courage. Um, and I really am emphasising it's not that much courage, but in the, in the spectrum, whatever, the spectrum, rather. Um, so I think that, that's been good. As you say, the IFC was pretty unsurprisingly disappointing um, we know how much money is kind of tied up there with the Olympics and there's been a lot of, you know, calls for it not to be in China anyway, given the issues with the Uyghurs. Is that how you say it? Uh, Uyghur, yeah. Uyghur, there we go. Yeah. I've always been pronouncing that wrong in my head. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, China's very problematic to say. I mean, I, I think the really interesting thing about this for me is just how far... It, kind of feels like you can you i almost feel like i'm falling into conspiracy theory terrorist uh, territory sometimes like with this well this but is so this is china isn't it i mean it's this just is so exactly it's exactly what it, these kind of pro um programs of propaganda are supposed to engender they're meant to sow seeds of doubt in normal thinking people in right-minded people um i've spoken to a lot of human rights experts over the last week a lot of people who know a lot about the way the ccp function and everything they say is that this is the playbook. 
This is how they do it. Um, they keep everything very tightly controlled, but they will also do their best to win the PR war. They're not going to just say nothing because they realise that that makes them look more guilty. But, it, you know, Peng Shui is now in this horrendous situation, as far as we can tell, where she is under the complete control of the CCP. Let's not forget she has family in China. Um, the CCP's playbook is pretty much to use any loved ones or family that you've got in the country to to blackmail you essentially into doing these appearances into saying that everything is fine and you know that basically looks like what is happening at the moment and the other thing is it just makes it so hard to prove and actually act from a kind of western perspective you know in some in some ways i'm quite relieved this week because when we started recording this last week i, I genuinely feared the worst um you know with the wca saying we couldn't get hold of her everything else for a week no one had seen her i mean your mind starts thinking well mm. is she alive i mean yeah. that, that was genuinely we, we didn't want to speculate last week and we said we wouldn't but that that was the sort of thought running through our minds now the question is what can anyone reasonably do she yeah. is alive it's, it's hard to prove she's being coerced even if as you say it is i mean i think for that. the record i think no one from outside of China has been able to speak to her or reach her reliably beyond that one email that was sent to the WTA that was very clearly not her. And Thomas I think some and Thomas Bach. Okay, fine. Um, but I think pretty much it's everything you need to know. You take all the context, all the previous behavior of the CCP, you take the not hearing from her for two and a half weeks. You take the fact her name is still censored or Weibo. The fact that you can barely post the word tennis, the Chinese word for tennis on Weibo, you take all of that, plus the, the state-sponsored propaganda program that's being fed out through the Global Times, and I don't think, it, I don't think it's a huge leap of logic. And I know there will be keyboard warriors left, right and centre saying, oh, you're just anti-China. I'm not. I'm anti-CCP. I don't mind saying that. I don't think the CCP are nice people, but there are lots of other people out there who know exactly how bad the CCP are. You, just Ai Weiwei, Liu Jia, to name two people who suffered at their hands. And, and the reason I mention them is because they got out and they now live abroad and can speak with freedom. But they tell us exactly how bad the Chinese regime are. So, yeah, it's an unpleasant situation. Um, I suppose if we're looking for positives, and there are no positives while well, she's not free to a certain extent, but as you say, George, the WTA have responded well. And Calvin, I suppose albeit some of them kind of belatedly, most players have realised what the side of right is here, haven't they? Um, yeah, most of them. There's some high-profile ones that didn't, um, which I thought was a bit disappointing. Um, and I think... But again, is that just the world we live in now? As, as we, It's been quite a big thing, hasn't it, in sport recently, that most athletes' social media accounts are not controlled by them. They're controlled by their agents or management, or if they're even bigger, they have actual social media people doing that for them. So everything is calculated, even if it's the safety and human rights of a fellow player. Mm. Um, if they think it might affect their, their earning capacity in China, which is probably still the biggest um, market in the world, I assume for, especially for female tennis players, I guess. Um but yeah, I think, I mean, it was encouraging, wasn't it? I think sort of 70% of the players probably said something or did something. Although I found it quite strange that what some of them were doing, some of them would just post a picture. Um, and then like some of them put the hashtag in as well. So it trended. 
and others just put the picture. And I don't know where, maybe I'm being too cynical there, but I thought it's not going to appear on any hashtag or something like that. It's not going to appear on any trending if you just put a picture up. But um, yeah, it's let's let's see what happens. I mean, there was some. It, it's got a bit strange in the last few days, hasn't it? I know there's like something with the video I saw yesterday that the date on the restaurant door was blurred out or something. So there were still some questions, I think. And then even somebody said that it, it wasn't actually her in the picture. Um, yeah, I've seen so... some of the body double stuff. And I think that's what George is alluding to. You feel like you're putting on your tinfoil hat and really, you know, yeah. starting to put pictures all over your wall and, and draw strings between them. But it's it's the reason that we talk about this, because the CCP have done it before. We know they've done it before um, and are not not beyond it. I, I guess it's, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because we still don't actually know whether she's retired or not. Like she hasn't played a match this year. Um, you know, I mean, then, yeah, it seems somehow tertiary. But yes, I have had this problem when writing stories. Be like, do I say former tennis player or yeah. tennis player? Because I'd quite like to ask her if she's retired. But equally, if I had an interview with her, it wouldn't be my first question. I'll be honest. And, and then even like I mentioned last week, that the Chinese have these sort of internal competitions that we don't know anything about. We don't see anything or anything. So I don't know. Although she hasn't played a tournament this year, I don't know whether she's been playing in that. I My feeling is that she probably will have been um, as somebody. The, the, ten, the recently retired, I know that Lee Nair played in that for about four years after she retired. So mm. um, I know that she probably is playing in that. So I don't know whether she has played any in that or what, whether it's even going on at the minute. No one knows anything about it other than people in China. So I don't, yeah. don't know. The other, um, just harking back to the players slightly, I mean, there was quite an in- interesting little detail from John Wertheim, um, who works for the Tennis Channel. Uh, he'd kind of said that the, there is very strong locker room support for just completely withdrawing from China, um, even affecting prize money. Now, again, that that shouldn't sound like it's a great grand statement because, you know, as we've said before, that is the right thing to do in this scenario. However, when it comes to players' pockets, it's quite rare for that actually to become the top consideration. Um, so so that, that is also encouraging um, as a kind of insider point of view of there being strong public, uh, private support from the players to pull out, even if it means losing a lot of prize money. We know there's a lot of prize money, particularly Shenzhen for the WTA, but Shanghai Masters is a big event in in the ATP calendar as well, prize money-wise. So, Well, and let's also not forget that um, the figure behind the Chinese TV deal to show tennis in the country is absolutely enormous. I think it's in the region of $140 million that the um, the streaming platform, the name of which escapes me, paid to show women's tennis in China. So, you know, the, the money here is like, and you combine that with the 10-year deal for the WTA finals, in Shenzhen, which is another $140 million. So that's close to $300 million already, plus the nine other events that are going on or supposed to be going on, WTA events, that is, are supposed to be going on in China next year. I mean, Calvin, I was asked this question the other day, whether there'd be any women's tennis in China next year outside of what we discussed just now. Um, And I thought it would actually be quite unlikely. Do you think the ATP will follow suit? It feels like they are sitting on the fence a little bit more. Um, I guess there's more time to work it out, isn't it? They don't tend to have much going on in, in China until, I guess, this time next year, maybe next October or something like that. So they might just hedge their bets on it. I feel like they ought to, though, if um, unless there's a, 
a reasonable conclusion that gets reached here. I feel like they ought to uh, pull out of everything. I think the problem is with it's the lesser, it's, which is the lesser of two evils, isn't it? Because you feel that if if the WTA are going to pull out of China, the only pl- the place where they're going to probably have to make that money back is in the Middle East, and then we're into a whole different league of of human rights and that kind of thing. But they're the probably the only people who would pay the same sort of money for for women's tennis at the minute. Yeah, in, in terms of timeline, I think if you remember earlier this year, that because obviously all the China stuff was cancelled this year anyway, um, the decision for that came around June and they just started scheduling the season um, first half and then first three quarters. So, that, so they do have time on that front to make that decision um, if the season has anything to go by. But as we've said, you know, hopefully we get a strong move one way or another earlier, um, sooner rather than later. Mm. Yeah, we we hope to hear better news of Peng Shui. I mean, frankly, I, I think the only uh, resolution at this point that goes anywhere near kind of satisfactory is that she's allowed to leave the country freely if she wants to, which I imagine she probably does. But as I mentioned before, if you can leave the country, but if your family is still there, then it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. The CCP still have a huge hold over you. So it's hard at this point to see... Uh, a reasonable resolution. I think the one commitment we can all make is to keep talking about it, to keep raising it. Um, that's the one thing that has really shown to work with the Chinese regime is to a persistent and public PR war is not something they always want to fight. So, um, yeah, we'll keep talking about it as much as we can and bringing you the latest, of course. Yeah, and I think, again, that, that seems to be the strategy from the WCA, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're releasing a lot of statements on this. They're trying to keep making noise. So I don't think this story is going anywhere particularly quickly until there's far better assurance than there is at the moment. Agreed. Um, now, moving on to uh, lighter matters and on-court matters. As, as I said last week, it's always hard to sort of segue casually from one to the other. So I'll do it in such a jarring way and point at it that no one could really blame me for trying. Um, Garbinia Muguruza, victorious at the WTA finals, as we said last week on this podcast Every time she enters a tournament, we should always mention her as a potential winner because when she plays her entire game, she is a potential winner. Um, she beat Annette Contevate in the final 6-3-7-5. She beat fellow Spaniard Paola Bedoza in the semis in straight sets as well. In fact, I think she only dropped two sets all week, uh, potentially. Or did no, because she lost to Pliskova in the group stages, I beg your pardon. So she wasn't even unbeaten. No one was, which I guess is the sign of a good tournament. George, um, I'm sure you're going to try and pretend that you predicted this, but uh, you didn't do it with any confidence, so we can't give you any any credit for that, I'm afraid. But nevertheless, a, a very good title for a woman who I think we, at times this year, have said is a form player in the world. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely will try and claim some credit because I said she should win. You're it, not getting uh, any, I'm afraid. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just edit it out. And also, I did did call Kritikova to win it, and obviously what I meant there was she would win the doubles. So sorry if that wasn't clear when I made that prediction. You say what you want, mate. It's not making the final edit. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, I mean, we, when we spoke about this before the tournament, we said if everyone plays the best of their ability, Muguruza wins this tournament. She's the best player there. Um, she's still, as we've said time and time again, one I still think she's as good as anyone else on the tour, particularly when we're talking about cross surface. If you ask me to, who I think has got the most weapons, the most power, 
but also control technique, really good volleyer. That's a very underrated skill of hers. One of the best volleyers on the WCA tour, I think, um, you know, she's got it all. And it is interesting to hear her say that she views this as the best season she's ever had. Bear in mind, she's a multiple Grand Slam champion, uh, won the French and Wimbledon. Um, but she, she has been very consistent and played very well. Um, and this this is obviously a pretty pretty major event to win. And it, it seemed like it was a excuse me, great success um, in Guadalajara, just to say that as well, while we're here, the really packed stadiums, um, certainly done their chances of keeping that tournament no harm and nice for it to go kind of to Central America, a bit of a different spot on the tour. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought that was, I was, I thought was say, a great I, I, I can think of a few tournaments in Mexico, but they're not top level WTA. I can think of, there's a one, two, five uh, in, I want to say Carbo potentially, um, and there's maybe one other down there that they play in the sort of sunshine swing in, in spring. But I can't think of there being many other really high-profile WTA tournaments there. Yeah, and, and the same for ACP, isn't it? I mean, what's the highest one? I think 500. Got a, is Rio 500, I think? Um, um, so I, I know that's South America, but I just mean that... Oh, right, I was going to say, George, that's like several thousand miles away. Yeah, but, but I mean like in that kind of big Spanish-speaking uh, yeah. community from the Central down to South uh, America. Okay. Um, that's kind of what I was driving at there. Good save, good um, save. Well yeah, I think it's. Uh, I'd, I'd be very happy for it to go there every year. I, the issue, as we've kind of said before, in with these season-ending finals and why they quite often ended up staying in Europe for a long time. I know that's not been the case on the WTA side, but the why the ATP one stays in Europe is because you know players are kind of sick of hopping everywhere at the end of the year, and it kind of worked the WTA one staying in Asia because they were all in Asia for that long long mm. but if, if it does go out of China it would be quite interesting to see how they rework that calendar would be quite a good opportunity potentially for a kind of new central South American swing take it to a new market but money's the issue so of course as, as it always is I mean there's no shortage of, of financial backing for sport in Mexico yeah anyone who knows anything about F1 will know that Sergio Perez has been extremely heavily backed throughout his career um, and there's plenty of money in, in Central America for that kind of thing. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Muguruza saying it's the best season of her career. I mean, statistically, it's only the second time she's ever won multiple titles in a season. She's been to five finals this year, which is a lot for someone who's actually only been to 17 finals in her whole career. Um, I, I was also going to say, Calvin, just looking at her ranking, she's now up to number three in the world, and that's off the strength of having not made it past the fourth round at any of the slams this year. You've got to think that if she could have a season like she has and then, you know, get to a semi and maybe win a title, she she's a world number one, isn't she? She, she, she could well easily be world number one. Yeah, that's kind of also points-wise, ranking-wise, that's kind of season that perfectly sets her up for this year because the big points are in the slams. She's already at three. And anything decent that she does in the slams, the ranking is just going to fly up. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, she'll have to be consistent throughout the year just to maintain those points as well. But if you're going to have a shot at world number, if you're number three in the world and you're, you want to have a shot at number one, that's the ideal setup. What you don't want is number three in the world and having to defend Australian Open winners points in exactly a month's time and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, but even if, if she gets to world number one, it'd be legit. She's been, she ought to have been world number one for most of the last, three or four years, along with maybe Osaka and, and Barty. But again, the, the women's rankings are just so much all over the shop. Like, 
like that's probably the best player in the world doesn't play tennis at the minute. Um, <laughs> the, the, the next best player in the world sort of flips in and out, chooses to play tennis sometimes. And it, yeah, it's just strange. So I'm not sure what we can read into the rankings, to be honest. Just to say on a slam performance as well, I think you'd only really put one of the slams down as a really bad performance from her. When you look at the players she lost to, I think it was Osaka in Australia, um, particular US Open. And Ons Jabor at Wimbledon, and that was a brilliant match. I mean, that yeah. was really, really tight, um, late match at Wimbledon. So, yeah, she lost, I think, was it Kostjuk at the French Open? I can't remember now. Um, oh, it was first but, round, that's all I remember. Yeah. Um, and that, that was a little bit disappointing. But Kostjuk's still not a terrible player. She was a very, very promising young talent. So, yeah, I think I think there is uh, certainly cause for optimism. And in theory, she'll get a good, good seeding. This year now is uh, world number two or three. World number three, um, yes. Um, speaking of the world number two, I think, I mean, again, the, the, this is always true of Arena Sabalenka, that you never quite know what you're going to get. But I think it was a surprise to see her, you know, for example, get absolutely mullered by Paolo Badoza, 6-4, 6-love. And then she played a couple of tight matches, one with Sakari that she lost and one with Shrontek that she won. Um you know, I'm a huge fan of Marina Sabalenka because while there's lots of women in the top 10 who hit it really hard, she hits it really hard and kind of unapologetically and remorselessly and constantly. Um, so it was interesting to see her kind of do exactly, I suppose, what we kind of expect her to do. If you have three matches of Arena Sabalenka, you probably expect her to beat one big player, lose a tight one and then completely blow up in another one. I was going to give you both uh, credit as well. I thought you both picked pretty well for the WT finals. So well, well, this then. is a first. This is George giving other people credit for predicting. I'm trying to parry some favour before I uh, come on to my great ATP finals prediction later. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> try and earn a real bit of praise from you both. Um, Are you yeah, saying I, because I picked Annette Conservate? Yeah, I, yeah, and I think, to be honest, when you both said, but I, I mean, this is the nature of the tournament, of course, that is so hard to predict. But I... When you both said Conservate and Bedosa, I was kind of like, uh, I can see them losing to the best players in the world. I wasn't that convinced, but I thought they both played really, really well. Um, mm. And it plays them good matches. So, good do we? I mean, I think we've talked about Annette Conservate quite a few times because of her great late burst in the year. Maybe less so Pala Bedosa. Um, you know, do we think she is the real deal? She's up at a career high of eight now. She obviously had that really good run in the quarterfinals to the quarterfinals of the French Open when. She maybe should have won that French Open, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, George, do you, do you think she's a genuine top 10 player for a, a reasonable amount of time? I think so. I mean, look, that French Open, I thought she was the player to win. It was like the third round, wasn't it, when it went completely chaotic in terms of yeah. everyone being gone. And you looked at the field, and you were like, Bedosa's the best clay court player here comfortably. Um, you know, that's her surface. But what's really impressed me is how she's taken to the hard courts later in the year, you know, winning Indian Wells and a really tight one against Azarenka. We all know how good she is um, on a hard court. I wasn't sure that part of the game was going to be good enough. Um, and she was pretty, played a couple of good matches on the grass as well. I mean, she's she's a lot better in all quarters than I kind of gave her credit for. Because um, in my mind, she was very much, this is the new potentially best player on clay in terms of a, a rare women's clay court specialist, perhaps you'd say. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think 
I don't, I don't see her being a world number one, if I'm honest. I see a, but I don't see why top five is not possible. Um, and if she keeps being this consistent, why not? I think, I think she, she's a, I'd, I'd put a decent wedge on her winning the French Open at some point. Mm. If she carries on this trajectory. And I've said it before, if she was playing the French Open that happened this year now, after the experience she's got from the rest of the year, I think she wins that. It was an inexperienced kind of coming into a slam, not almost like not experienced enough to feel that moment. Mm. I think now having won Indian Wells, I think she'd deal with that situation a lot better. And I'd, I'd firmly back her to win the title from that position. She lost that horrible match 8-6 in the in the third, didn't she, to yeah. tomorrow's She really did that. I mean, yeah. that was a pain yeah. It was a painful watch because I had it for fantasy tennis and I was really <laughs> quite angry about it. I, I, I put myself through watching it and it was pretty low quality. Um, who was going to lose, not lose it, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Calvin, I don't know how much you know about Paola Badoza in terms of kind of where she's come from. I mean, she, she is only 24 and, you know, I think she hadn't been past the first round of a slam until uh, this time in 2012, uh, Australian Open 2020. So she's come out of the blue a little bit. I don't know if she's a name that, that was thrown around as someone who, who had some ability or not. Yeah, I kind of heard the name a few times for a few years. Um, she came through that. I guess I kind of knew the name because I went to Tabs where the world, basically the World Under 14 Championships are. Um, I went the year that she was, was around that level. I don't actually remember whether she was at Tabs, but because of that, I went for two years in a row and, those players, you kind of know the names of them and that kind of thing. Same same year, I think, as Katie Bolter from the UK and um, a few others. So I kind of knew a name for a bit. Always hit a huge ball. Um, always somebody you thought could play, but never one who stood out as you thought, this is a superstar. But I do think that she's genuinely a top 10 player and I think she will continue to be. I think she seems to... She had some sort of, I don't want to say issues, but some complications in her personal life um i think somewhere in the middle of this year she seems to have sorted out she seems really happy and um content now and she's had a great last couple of months of the year hasn't she mm. yeah i think she's actually just to kind of um expand on that a little bit she's she's talked uh, op- relatively openly about like struggling with depression and anxiety and and that might explain a little bit of her kind of late blooming but she also talked about getting a bit of a handle on it as you say and and, you know, getting herself into a place when when she could succeed a bit more. But, you know, I think we've learned maybe more over the last three or four years than than any other time that tennis development is very, un- well, there's no one way to do it, I suppose is the best way to put it. Like, you don't have to be good at 21. You don't have to be good at 17. You just have to be good at some point. And there's lots of different times to bloom, which I guess in the women's game, especially like, you know, we talk a lot about this new generation of players. But if you actually look at the top 20 at the moment, or the top 15 even, there's players at all different stages of their career, all of whom, you know, I think there's maybe 10 career highs in the top 15 at the moment. And you would say that so many of them have got really different stories of development. You know, you've got Iga Shontek, who obviously was massive in juniors, and is still very young, but had a big breakthrough at the French, or, or Muguruza, who's always been there or thereabouts, or Badoza, who's a kind of middling bloomer. I think it's actually a really interesting question. How many of this current top 10 do we think will be top 10 this time next year? Okay, well, we'll go through it if you want. Ash Barty. I think that's fairly yes. safe. Yeah. yeah. Savalenka. Yeah, she's pretty good at tour level. I think she's she'll get enough points. Uh, Muguruza, I think we'd agree with. 
Well, I, know, I mean, you never know. That's the thing. It wouldn't surprise no, I me. Mean, there's no, there's, top 20, but I mean, she should be. Clip this and play it back to me next Christmas, but there is no way Garbinia Muguruza ends 2022 not top 10, um, <laughs> barring injury. She's had some terrible years in the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's had some really bad years. I mean, she did end 2019 number 36 in the world, which is the last time we had a proper tour season. So, you know, maybe I'm completely wrong. Uh, here's the interesting one, Carolina Pliskova. Yeah, she's pretty steady top ten. Um, I think she. I mean, there, there are lots of words I could. Use, there are lots of words I could use to describe Caroline Pliskova. Steady isn't one of them. In terms of she's, top ten, she's, though, she's, she's got a huge serve, and I think that keeps her in there. Mm. I, I think, although she's got a lot of points in slams to defend, and she doesn't do well in slams generally. Mm. She's got final Wimbledon, hasn't she? Yeah. Mm. And historically, she doesn't do well in slams, so. She yeah she could drop out although she has got I think she might drop out to be fair I'll I'll firmly back her to be top ten next year I'm pretty confident she'll still be top ten uh, Do you feel similarly confident about Barbora Krejcikova and this is singles for clarity it's Such a tough one isn't it? I mean she's I don't know I mean she had a stunning season like I think comfortably player of the year on the women's tour really when you combine her her doubles achievements in there um, even though Barty's comfortably the best singles player. Um, oh, I I would imagine she'll be top fifteen for sure, but I, I'm not sure she'll still be top ten. I don't think she wins the French Open again, so I think that's a lot of points coming off. So yeah, drop. She is steady though, isn't she? She doesn't lose a lot of matches that she shouldn't do. She's kind of like the opposite of of Muguruza. When you look at the players she loses to since the French Open, she's kind of got through to a seeded position all the time and lost to somebody who was seeded above her. Mm. Um, that, that tends to operate, but. And yeah, she also, yeah, she has got that slam to defend. Um, and she also, and we should mention it because I mentioned it in the intro, made a, a brilliant speech. Uh, was it the trophy ceremony of the WTA finals that she was called upon yeah. to speak? Because she'd obviously won the doubles. And it was on the day when they celebrate the Velvet Revolution, which I would urge you to look up and read about. Um, it's the day that the, uh, the autocratic communist regime in Czechoslovakia was cast off. The same regime that forced Martina Navratilova, who was stood just behind her, actually, um, it's the, the same regime that forced her to, to emigrate and move to America so that she could have freedom, essentially. And in the context of the, the Peng Shui kind of conversations we've been having, it seemed very poignant. And it was the moment that Andy Murray chose to sort of enter his thoughts on the debate. He said, this speech is what gives us hope, um, which was interesting and frustrating, given that I had already spoken to Andy Murray's people and they told me that he wouldn't be saying anything about it. But that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, so you know, she's, she's not only a great player, she's clearly also got a head screwed on. Just the other thing to say about the rankings is that okay, she's got 2,000 points from the French, which is a lot, but she has picked up 3,000 otherwise. So it's not you can't just say, Oh, it's a, a one slam thing, you know, she'd have been in contention to be pretty close to getting to the WTA finals, regardless. Um, mm. would have just missed out, but you know, assuming she still makes quarters or whatever, that's. That, that, that is a dangerous assumption, so I certainly won't be assuming that. But, you know, I, I'm just saying, I think our general points is pretty good as well. It's not just a one-hit pony. If there's one thing we've learned on this podcast, George, it's assume nothing. 15 Okay, now we get into the quite tough bit of the, uh, the top 10. We're trying to work out whether 
the WTA top 10 will look anything like it does now in a year's time. Uh, Maria Sakari for your consideration, please, gentlemen. Tough one, isn't it? Yeah, I think she will be. I think she will be. But she seems reliable, doesn't she? she she's really stepped up this year. Um, I, I wouldn't be that surprised if she won a slam next year as well. I, I think she's Which really one tempted. do you think? Which one's her best chance? I'd give her a decent go in Oz. I, do, I was potentially thinking Wimbledon. I've always thought that she she has a bit of a chance at Wimbledon because there aren't that many particularly good grass court players in the women's game at the moment, no? I mean, you know, unless I'm being a complete idiot. But. I think Barty's the exceptional one. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Calvin, do you think she, you say she will still be top 10? Yeah, although... I don't necessarily agree on the slam thing because she tends to have she tends to do very very well in slams until the quarterfinals and then completely goes to pieces mm. um, when she gets there and I think that's maybe a mental block. She's one of those other that type of player is really strange. I think she's either really solid and dependable and she'll just continue doing what she's done, or there's an argument that she just had her best ever year and we don't know if she can maintain that. Mm. So um, I think she probably will still be top ten though. Uh, which brings us on to Annette Contervate, Contervate, um, who I sort of begrudgingly, uh, no, not begrudgingly, sadly, just feel like might not still be a top 10 player next year. Um, yeah, again, I think you've got to be wary of like bursts of form and she's just had a phenomenal burst of form, hasn't she? So I think it's... Although, again, it's difficult to tell where, because it's a small sample size where she's at. So we don't know whether this could, whether it was a burst of form that where she was playing above her level and she'll regress to the mean or whether that's now her level, what, what she's done there. So I think it's, I think, it's difficult I think to say on that. The reason I'm so hesitant is because unlike the men's game, because, because of the shape of the curve in the women's rankings, and now that we're out of the frozen stage, you can actually burst into the top 10 relatively quickly. You know, you can have three months of good form and get there rather than in the men's yeah. ranking, it feels like you need six months of that, um, which is why I'm a bit more. Whereas Paolo Badoza, I feel fairly confident in for all the reasons we've just said. Yeah, I think Badoza will be top 10. I'm pretty sure about that one. Mm. Is Osaka not in the top 10 at the minute? No, she is 13th in the world at the moment. Yeah, I mean, you've got to imagine that Osaka's coming back in. So, so someone's got to miss uh, out, yeah. Somebody has to drop out, yeah. Um, and you'd think potentially Raducanu as well, if she can put together a few uh, a few performances. Um, Iga Shontek, Calvin, I know you will say that she will be in the top 10 next year because you're yeah. a big fan of hers. Cal- uh, George, are you going to agree? Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you... I, I did text you my... I was having internet problems, I'm sorry. I did text you my list of the final four. Yeah, I mean, you I agreed with us on both of them, so I wasn't going to yeah, bring it no up. It was gonna, no one was ever going to know that you dropped off the call for a minute and a half, but you ruined it. <laughs> Um, Sviante, yeah, absolutely. Um, should be top five, really. But yeah, we'll see. Uh, and, and then, finally, Onzjabur. Not for me. Um, I think she's played about as well as she's going to this season. I think she's close to peaking. Um, so no. Alan, same, same, same question, same answer. Uh... And I think Jabot Jabot tends to do all right at the at most tournaments. I maybe because she's ten, she's probably most likely to not be in the top ten. Well, inevitably, but, yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. I think she's got as much of a chance of being in there as 
Krajikova and Sakari and maybe Pliskova, as I say. I think it probably comes into one of those who won't be. Yeah, I, I think you know it is important to caveat all of this that I could see all of them apart from Barty not being in the top ten next year. <laughs> like, really, like that—that that is the state of the play in the women's. Well, I story. think as we've as we said when we were talking about WTA finals, if you were to pick the ten best players in the world, not many of them are in the top ten. Like you know, I, I, I'm not going to start the Serena debate, but like. Coco Goff, Emma Raducanu, potentially Leila Fernandez. Um, you know, the, there's at least three players who aren't in the top ten, but we all think are some of the best players in the world. Ha- Hallett will be top ten next year. Yeah, crikey, I forgot about Simone Hallett. Definitely a top ten player. I think Kerber could get back in there if she finds form. Um, you know, th- there's good players. Svitolina, I mean, Svitolina, when's the last time Svitolina has not been at the WCA finals? Not for a while. I mean, mm-hmm. that's... She's a consistent top eight player. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I expect a few rises, and as, if Azarka's okay, um, she she should be one or two really. I mean, I hate to bang bang the same drum as we often have, but if we have a tournament when like the twelve players we all think are really good in the women's game all get to the quarter, all get to the fourth round, it's going to be a really exciting tournament. We just haven't had it yet, have we, Calvin? No, yeah, I've been saying that all year pretty much, that it, that it, it does have potential to be a phenomenal era in women's tennis. They have, all, at some stage, all got to start playing each other at, at the final stage. And that's why the, the finals in Mexico were quite interesting, because you got, you. I know the couple of the biggest names weren't there, but you got that situation that we were asking for, and it was a pretty good event in the end. Mm. But, it, um, it made yeah, me think players. that round-robin tournaments might actually be the answer. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, there's an argument in that, but also consistency as well. I think the players have to be, and as well, and I get there's different reasons why they're not, but they've all got to play the same tournaments at, at yeah. some stage. We've been having this problem where, like, it, does, it seems like ages, and I'm, I might be wrong in saying this, but it seems like ages since Barty and Osaka have actually played the same tournament as each other. For well, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, by by almost exclusively by nature of, of Osaka, well, Barty didn't play for a year, and Osaka didn't, hasn't played for. Yeah, six months. So yeah, inevitably that's true. Yeah, I was just going to lob in a couple of more names. I'd be interested to see if they bounce back. Like people like Andreescu. I mean, Andreescu on paper should be a top ten player, but she's dropped pretty woefully this year. Um, I'm starting to the... wonder about Bianca Andreescu. If I'm honest, yeah, I think the injuries might kill her, but Kvitova I could see getting back up there. Jen Brady. I mean, Brady was playing brilliant stuff on the hard courts until injury. I mean, that's someone else who I, I wouldn't put it past us and pop back up there. So Yeah, although I did feel with Jen Brady that it was like, it, it felt like one of those sort of moonshot moments where it felt like she was in good form on her favourite surface. Things were going well. She was in great shape physically. And it felt like that was her opportunity. You know, she, did she play Osaka in Australia in the quarters, I think? Or did she played her in the semis in the US two years ago and then she played her in Australia in the quarters? Um, she got to the final, didn't she, Brady? Or was that last year? Oh, I've lost my head. Was that, that was this year, wasn't it? Beg your pardon. No. You know what I'm oh, talking no. about, though. She had several... Yeah, she got to the final this year. I'm sorry. Yeah. But I, I just felt like that sort of window, you know, 2020 US Open semi-final, 2021 Australian Open final, that felt like a, a moment of opportunity. And I didn't feel like she was going to get back to that level. I think, to be fair to her, there has been a big injury problem 
since I think it was since around the French. So I think there's been, you know, it's hard to know whether the drop has come or whether it's just fitness related. I kind of agree with you that, you know, that was certainly her best moments and I wouldn't necessarily be saying she'd be winning slams, but the level she was playing at um, and considering most of the tour is on a hard court, which is her best surface. Um, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. Well, let's move on, shall we? Um, the ATP finals were this week as well. Uh, that weird sort of half crossover with the WTA finals, which is always a bit of a problem. Um, Alexander Zverev emerging victorious. He beat Novak Djokovic on Saturday night, late on Saturday night, and then got out of bed in the morning and promptly, well, frankly, battered Daniil Medvedev in the final straight sets. Just over an hour. Didn't really break too much of a sweat, which against Medvedev is uh, saying something. The US Open champion, the famous grinder. Uh, George, uh, don't think you predicted this one, or did you mention it? I mean, you, you predicted at least four players, as I recall. No, I went pretty firmly to on this one. I thought, I think this is his, I think indoors now is the area he shines most. I have to say, I was, I was kind of reconsidering my prediction when I saw Medvedev beat him in the group stages and kind of realised Medvedev had won that head-to-head like five times in a row. Um, so it felt, I was kind of like, oh, actually, is Zverev just not able to get the better of Medvedev? But when Zverev serves as he did in that final, I think it was at 73, 74% yeah. serves in, something like that. He's got one of the best serves in the world. If he, if he gets it in, it's fantastic, particularly on an indoor hardcore. Um, so it, he's incredibly tough to beat when that happens. Um, I think we were right about Novak. We all, I think we all said, did anyone pick Novak? I mean, I was pretty firm that I didn't think he would win it based on seems to kind of develop you know, apathy is probably a bit strong, but not really as motivated about this tournament as he has been in the past. Mm. Um, already had the number one ranking wrapped up. Um, I think there were a lot. I think we all had doubts. We all had had kind of significant doubts. I I think Calvin had Medvedev, didn't he? Yes. Um, But just let's talk about Djokovic, but in the context of Zverev, he obviously was beaten in that semi-final on Saturday night. Does that feel like a significant moment? Are we going to, in two years' time, say, oh, remember when Zverev beat Djokovic in Turin? I think... What I kind of think about it now is I think we're for the first time at a point where every match between Novak, Medvedev and Zverev is about 50-50. I really don't see much splitting them on a hard court. Um, And I think I'm starting to think that's true at slams as well. Um, I'm sure Novak will just come back if he turns up, which we'll talk about in a a bit. Um, He'll probably go and win a 10th Australian Open because he just seems to find another level there. But at I really don't see much splitting those guys at the moment. Um, I think they've all got great weapons. They've all got interesting styles. And, you know, I know we spoke about this match the other week in Paris, which Novak did win. It felt he had to go very far out of his comfort zone to win that match. Novak is good enough to do weird things because he's one of the best match players of all time. But I think he can't beat these guys playing the way he did now, or at least he's going to lose as many as he's going to win trying to play the previous way. They've got a lot about them. They're good runners. They hit the ball really hard, really well, really deep. I think I, I really think this is the turning point now. I think Novak will still win slams, but I think it's going to be. I don't see next year being anywhere close to as dominant as this one at that level. 
Palin, do you agree? Um, yes and no. I think um, the surface plays a huge part, as we've seen all year with Zverev. If he plays at some sort of altitude and the court's fast, he's just he's very, very hard to play against because of because of his size, the way he serves and his serve. I noticed he served at 75% in the final yesterday. If he does that and the court's fast, he's so tough to beat because his serve is so huge. Um, and he's definitely improved his second serve, although there were some ropey ones later on of, of different kind. The match point, he just absolutely leathered another first serve and served an ace. And I think the one at, I think there was a second serve at, at 15 all in the last game where he barely got over the net. Um, but... And so the surface, the surface plays a part, which I think is going to be his problem in the slams because there's no real fast surface in any of the slams, fast surface or, or altitude, which is where he plays his best. Also the format, he still hasn't shown that he can beat any of these guys over five sets. He beats them regularly over four, over three sets. He's, he's, I'd even say, I would back him. When George said their match between Nok- uh, Djokovic and Zverev is 50-50, I, I think it's, I'd say 55-45 in Zverev's favour over best of three. But... He hasn't shown that he can beat any of them over best of five. Um, and especially in Australia, where I think it's medium-ish pace. Um, and it's also difficult to tell in terms of Medvedev against Djokovic over best of five, because they've played twice this year over best of five, and one of them has played terribly in each match. <laughs> so uh, I think it's difficult to see where, where how they would face up. I still think Djokovic is favourite for the Australian Open because I don't think Medvedev will win it. And he, he destroyed he destroyed Medvedev in the final um, last year. Yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, it's basically, it's a bit like Federer and Wimbledon, or at least in the old days. It doesn't really matter what else is going on. Or I suppose Nadal at the French. It doesn't matter what's going on. You don't bet against them. And it, it feels the same now with Djokovic again in Australia. And and almost that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because we all think that. I think that permeates to the players as well. I think much as Daniil Medvedev might believe that he can beat Novak Djokovic on any given day now, I think one of those given days is not the final in Melbourne. The slam that's most certain for Novak now for me is Wimbledon comfortably. I think none of the young guys have made that transition to grass at all. Um, Novak is very good on it moves very well even even with the early tournament slips he was having this year um i i, I still think that's the one he definitely wins next year but I, I you know the french will be tough to replicate i think for a couple of reasons i think nadal will be putting every egg in his basket to get back to that i think team will be back in some form next year and if team is anyway close to where he was playing at the end of last year he wins the French Open. He goes in as the favourite for me, the level he was at then. It'll be interesting if he does get back to that. There's a lot of ifs, but I think he beats Djokovic on that surface. Um, I don't want to say anything about Novak's run this year was lucky, but of all the things that were went in his favour this year, I think avoiding an informed team at the French Open was one of them. Um, so I think there's a lot of variables. And as I say, we don't know if he's going to go to Australia. So that, that makes that uncertain. And the US is the one I see as the toughest one for him to win. And it has been historically, you know, whether it's just running out of gas at the end of the season, doesn't, you know, gets a lot of finals, doesn't go over the line. I don't know what, what it is about that tournament. And it's the best one for Medvedev. And Zverev has been to a final there as well. I, and I and think team of, teams, of, teams obviously won it as well. So yeah. you've got, you know, so, we hope that we see Dominic team back for. I do wonder whether there's a bit of an emotional crash. You know, Novak, I think, 
you know, much he's a monster in so many ways and brilliant so many things. But especially latterly in his career, I do think of him as a very emotional kind of beast. And I do think that he puts a lot of emotion into the French Open and, and going from the French to Wimbledon and trying to do that and, and everything that goes with that. And I do feel sometimes that he gets to the second week of the first week of July and then just goes, oh, that was a hell of a six months. I need a big holiday. And then, you know, I'm trying to think, does he usually play Cincy before the US? But Dulce didn't do that this year, as far as I can recall. Um, it, it feels now like the second half of the year, not just for him, but especially for him, it is a harder one to get back up for. It's funny because he actually responded really well to win that US Open final in terms of winning Paris straight after. Like mm. I don't think any of us really had him down as, which is so weird to say because we always have him down as the favourite normally. Yeah. Like every time you enter, it'd be like, yeah, Djokovic is going to win this, no question. But I think Calvin's right, best of three now. I'd be picking Medvedev and Zverev to be winning the hardcore, big hardcore events above Djokovic now over best of three. Mm. Um, Motivation is a big factor in that. And, and this seems weird to say, given he's just won Paris. I felt he needed to win Paris to kind of be like, I need to show these guys I'm still, I'm not falling away and nothing's wrong. And he's historically done quite well at bouncing back from kind of bad slam final losses. Like I'm pretty sure he won the next tournament after losing to Nadal with the French Open. Might be wrong there. Um, but he, he has traditionally kind of, he is quite good at suddenly flicking the switch back on aside from that long period between 2016 and 2018 where you know whatever happened happened whether how much you read into the elbow or the mental thing whatever i think he's um, also quite good at picking his spots like i think he he knows when he needs a tournament he can win and he knows what tournaments he can win and and you know obviously as you say almost any tournament is the answer to what tournament he can win but I do think that he's, you know, it's like a boxer. Good boxers pick the right fights. And I think Djokovic has the the kind of the wherewithal to do that now. I think it's getting tougher for him to do that now, though. I think that Paris match, all right, he won that. But that was one of the one match I've watched recently where I was like, wow, Medvedev's like going to win this rivalry comfortably now, I think. Like, mm. and that's strong. I don't, I don't actually think that. But in terms of winning the baseline exchanges, Medvedev looks so much stronger, which is just such a rare thing for Djokovic. And yeah, he found a way to do it. He was serving volleying. He changed. He did what Medvedev has had to do to beat him in the past. You know, we're talking about kind of weird matches where Medvedev just tries weird things. Um, I think it was Toronto or Cincinnati where, you know, he just started serving first serves as a second serve. Yeah. And that worked and he won. But it was like, you can't replicate that. It kind of felt to me that's what happened in Paris this time where, yeah, Novak did win by kind of going mad on the serve and volley. But I'm not sure you can do that consistently against Medvedev. I think that's a really tough rivalry from him now. I think the same for Zverev. As Calvin says, can Zverev step up to best of five? Can he do it over five? I think there's evidence he's getting there. I think he's had a really good year at slam level. Lost a tight one to Djokovic in the US, but played a really good match. I, I, I think he wins a slam next year. I do. I, I really think he gets there. Um, and not... I won't be supporting him to do that, but I do think he will do it. My, my concern with Zverev, not my concern, because I hope he doesn't win a slam and I hope he doesn't um, do very well. But um, my concern for him would be that his top level is excellent. We know where his top level is. That's what he came with 
yesterday. And but I still think he has issues. I still think he gets nervous. I still think he gets edgy. And his first serve gets him out of that. And I don't know if like yesterday he won serving seventy five percent. If he serves sixty five percent, I don't think he wins that match. And I think that that's what we need to know is like what happens when the first serve isn't there. And it happened that the, the, this was key when he was in Madrid earlier this year when he won he won the tournament in Madrid and played excellent again at altitude and over best of three. But he he kept getting himself in trouble where he's really nervous, really edgy, and then he'd just throw a bomb of a first serve down. Now you can say that that shouldn't be held against him. It's part of his game. It's his first serve. But what I still don't know is can he win these matches if his first serve isn't firing? And not only isn't firing, but even if it's at normal levels of percentage in, if it's at 65, which most male players take, can he do it? But it seems to be like, because he relies so much of it, it's, it's, it's twofold as well, because he relies so much of it as a weapon for free points, but also his second service is still really bad, even though it's improved. So it's not like it's not like he's, he's got the huge first serve, but his second serve's all right, so he can get by. Whenever it gets tight and he's got second serve to hit, you're thinking 40% chance it's a double fault here? I think what Calvin's touching upon here as well is um, I think the biggest barrier for Zverev winning a slam is this matchup with Medvedev. I think he needs to be pretty perfect on his game to win that. So I, I don't necessarily take this result as like, a wow, this is Zverev definitely going to the next stage winning a slam. I do think he will win one next year, but that's just more about his natural progression. But I think the biggest barrier for him is the matchup with Medvedev is not good. He needs to play so perfectly to win that. Um, and Calvin's right. I don't think we've seen Zverev answer the question about whether he can win baseline rally after baseline rally against Medvedev without that first serve percentage being that high. I, I agree with Calvin. I think he'll really struggle if he's not getting that high 60s, low 70s. I think as well that like we we go back to the, the sort of match that I, I tend to go back to a lot, the 2019 Wimbledon final where uh, Djokovic beat Federer and Djokovic played absolute gunk in that final. He was absolute garbage. Like playing, gen, generally playing through the whole match, he was playing like four out of 10 tennis. And there's no <laughs> way that Zverev wins a, a slam final playing four out of 10 tennis. And, and most people can't, to be fair, but I think Nadal can. Um, Djokovic can I think Medvedev even like if his head doesn't go can do it because he knows he's got that base game of he's just going to never miss he's going to hit his first serve big he can even hit his second serve big and he's going to hit to a length so maybe not 4 out of 10 but you can imagine Medvedev winning finals at 6 out of 10 you kind of still get the feeling with Zverev it's got to be 8 out of 10 or he's not winning the matches the big matches I, I sort of compare it to football. I, I don't want to talk about Manchester United too much, given it might be a bit painful for Calvin at the moment. But, it, you know, they always used to talk about Man United winning games when they weren't at their best. And it was the sign of champions to win games, even when you would play badly. And I do think in tennis, that's very true. You need to find ways to get through matches on your worst day. As a Villa fan, I can confirm that Man United have played terribly against us consistently for years. <laughs> Always managed to win, apart from this season. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was fitting this year that really Solskjaer's reign uh, really started car crashing after Villa's 1-0 win a few months ago. I don't think they've won since in the league. So. <laughs> that, that, oh, that, they beat, they beat Spurs. They beat Spurs. You can always beat Spurs. <laughs> oh, they did beat Spurs. I apologise. Yeah, yeah. they Let's let's move on, I think, uh, because I do want to talk about Roger Federer before we get to the end of our time. And he did a big interview uh, 
uh, in the Swiss media this week with uh, 24 hours, as the newspaper is called. Um, he said he did it because there was lots of speculation and he wanted to talk about that speculation or kind of put it to bed um, about whether he was retiring or coming back. He, the, the interview was characterised as quite an optimistic one. I did not agree with that because when you read what he said, it wasn't optimistic at all. He said that he would be surprised if he's playing Wimbledon next year. So Australian Open is out, French Open obviously is out, um, but he would be surprised if he's at Wimbledon next year. Now, I'm no expert on knee surgeries, and he's had, obviously, um, they. Well, he did actually give some quite interesting detail on the knee where they said they went in to repair the meniscus and the doctor sort of did some cartilage while he was there, um, which I think is, you know, like, oh, I was just, I was in Tesco, so I thought I'd pick up some rice because I knew we needed some. I wasn't there for rice, I just did it because I was there. Um, and they did something similar with Federer's knee, as far as I can tell. Uh, but it means it's a very long rehab. Um, this will mean that it's basically, given that this surgery, I mean, you know, this knee surgery cycle started February 2020. I mean, this is going to be two and a half years nearly of Federer, okay, with a few matches in between, um, having a knee problem that is probably going to end his career one way or another. George, do you see him getting coming back? Oh, um, yes. I'm, I'm still going to say yes. But I, I think, did he say in there he still dreams of winning a slap and thinks he can do it? Well, yeah, because I, yeah, I think, slap. yeah, that, because I don't think it was the last thing he said. And he said, I know it would be a miracle, but sport does sometimes let miracles happen. Um, there's no way, there's no way he's winning a slap. No, uh, no, on any level. Categorically not, unless Djokovic goes completely complete walkies um Wimbledon's his only hope and not well Novak's anywhere near um there's no other slam he can win like the, the hard quarters are too good now Medvedev and Zverev like they're, they're causing Djokovic you know a Djokovic who's six years younger problems there's no way Federer's coming back and through those guys now they're, they're too good um so yeah no on that point if that needed saying I don't think that really did probably um I do. I've kind of said this before about Federer. I still think he'll try and get to a stage where he's at least exhibition tennising. Um, I, I imagine he'll try and have one more farewell at Wimbledon, whether it be this year or next year. But it might be a pretty wild card. Gets to the second round with an emotional win over, you know, Manorino in the first round or whatever, and then loses. <laughs> I feel that like Adrian Manorino is the dream first round draw. Just like it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you want to play Adrian Manorino. I'm, I'm writing. No, I'm not writing things. Yeah, he, when you're going on your protected ranking, I, I'm just having a complete brain melt here. When you're going on your protected ranking to tournaments, do you get that seeding as well or not? I don't think you do. Do you? No, I think you do because you I go in. You do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you go in with with your protected ranking, and that's the entry list. And they pull, well, no, because they, they pull the seeding off the live rankings, don't they? That's a really good question, George. And All I right. bet you it's one that no one can answer. Let us know on Twitter, at Love Tennis Pod, if you know the answer. Um, but that would be a big interesting factor as well, because, I mean, imagine Federer coming back at Wimbledon, using his protected ranking, not seeding, first round, match with Novak, or match with Rafa. <laughs> you know, we kind of wanted that with Murray and got a couple of, yeah, you know, Murray's played Vavrinka and Sissipas in slams in the last yeah. two years. But 
be interesting if Federer came back and did that. You wouldn't want him first round at Wimbledon, that's for sure. <laughs> but all jokes aside, like Novak generally warms up through the tournament, really. Um, he, he definitely could be caught cold by Roger Federer, grass court extraordinaire in round one. I don't think he'd be caught by him in the final. I think, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm on the same as George there. I think there's been this weird sort of idea around that he could even miss next year and play Wimbledon the year after. Which, yeah. like, coming in at 42 after not playing a, tennis for a year would be bizarre, wouldn't it? But um, I think another sort of... I don't really know the update on this, though, but another injury news for so something that I think is more realistic of somebody really coming back strong is is that apparently Del Potro's coming back next year. Um, he said at the US Open, I think, that he would be ready to start next season. And I don't think there's been anything else. And that is somebody who has previously been away for a year and come back and got right back to the top of the game. Mm. And I'd expect if he comes back pain-free, injury-free, which is a massive if for him, um, I think we'll see him going deep into slams again. I hope he does. George is the man most like Juan Martín del Potro. I'm sure you'd be excited to see him back on the court. Yeah, I love del Potro. Great player. Great guy to on the top of the game. I just, having watched the way he did his kind of subsequent injuries after the first one. Like I remember the fall against Shapovalov at Wimbledon was so innocuous on that knee. And the one, was it against Charich in Shanghai, I think? That's 2019. Yeah. You know, he literally just fell over. And the guy was then out for months and months and months and months. I don't know. I just, I, I just don't see... There's a lot of ifs, isn't there? There's him, there's Kyle Edmund the same. What's Kyle Kyle Edmund? I mean, Dominic team, you kind of had to put in that category now. Given how long it is since we've seen him hit the ball in anger. Yeah, the Kyle Edmund all goes on and on, I'm afraid. Tell you another one that's interesting. I mean, Sissipas is having elbow surgery, isn't he? I mean, that's a massive part of your body to be having surgery on at his age. I mean, that's really not ideal. Yeah, that's um, just come out in the last couple of days, isn't it? His team kind of telling, I think, Italian TV that he's going to go and have elbow surgery. I mean, that is, we'll we'll discuss it more next week, maybe when we know a bit more and when we can have, give it more time. But as you say, George, that's that's pretty significant. And I think probably one they've been putting off for a while. It feels like... Feels... Form's been bad. I mean, I kind of put that down to the way he lost that French Open final. But it wouldn't surprise me if this has been an ongoing thing. They've been trying to get him to play through the pain. Um, but to me, it seems I, I don't know the details of how bad it is. But if if it has been an issue since you know the summer or whatever, it seems a bit risky to me to be putting it off this long. Like you may as well sack off the end, the back end of the season, really. Like after the US Open for a surgery on your elbow. Like Australia's got to be a pretty serious doubt there. Um, I think on City Pass, I'm, I'm speculating here, but um, I don't know. I have any inf- inside information. I don't know if this is the case, but. One of the reasons I think he probably has issues with his his elbow is that generally if your shots are not biomechanically sound, that can happen. And his backhand is a pretty ugly-looking shot. It's strange for a one-hander because he doesn't tend to hit it with a straight arm. Generally, what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about there is if somebody hits the backhand, the follow th- at some stage in the follow-through or during the shot, the arm straightens out. If you think about with Rinka, Federer, if you watch that, whereas City Pass there's always like a bend in his arm, even when he's driving the backhand. And I think that that, that kind of thing would alert me to think that there is a, some sort of injury related to his technique, which could, wh- why I'm getting onto that, which could have bigger ramifications. Either he changes his backhand or he might keep keep on having these problems. That's uh, funny very interesting. Well, just, to, just to follow up on that, the issue 
you know, we've seen people like Del Potro, for example, changed shots hugely significantly after injury. I mean, the Del Potro backhand, he, he literally couldn't hit through it. He went full full kind of slice um, for a long time after one of his injury comebacks. Sissipas's slice is poor, really poor, um, which is quite rare, actually, for like a, a one-handed backhand. You normally have quite good feel on that shot, better than a two-handed guy, uh, in my experience. Um but his, his is noticeably quite poor. So for him to, if it was something like that, and he was having to start relying more and more on the slice, I think that would be a really interesting and big problem for him. Um, and his forehand's not as big as Del Potro's. So Del Potro got away with it because he hits so big off that one side that the backhand just getting back into play is okay because as soon as it goes to the forehand, he just absolutely twats it. But this and the serve as well. It's yeah. a huge serve as well. Yeah. Del Potro. So if he does have to make that sort of structural change to his game, that slice is going to have to improve so significantly. I'm not sure it can or will to the level it needs to be to be affected. Um, so really interesting time watching him come back if this is a significant injury. Yes, much to much to mull over. Unfortunately, not many not many answers, but many many questions. But that's kind of the love tennis pod for you, if nothing else is. Um, thank you as always for listening. We've, we've run out of time and possibly run into time, um, but do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. Do follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod, and uh, thanks as always. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.